0: Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why is That Podcast. Welcome back to the Why is That Podcast. I want to start this week with a quick thank you to Rob and Jamie from the Totalis Rankium Podcast. They have graciously recommended us during an episode of Roman Emperors. I would like to welcome my new listeners and say that I greatly appreciate the shout out. It means a lot to me, and for those of you who have not heard of Totalis Rankium, it is three different podcasts. The original is Roman Emperor's Totalis Rankium, the second is American President's Totalis Rankium, and the third is Whiskey Battle's Totals Rankium. The concept behind each is that Rob provides biographical information about the subject, and then he and Jamie rank them. It is both a fun and informative way to learn history, and I would definitely recommend them all to you. In episode 115, Michael, of Roman Emperor's Totalis Rancium, the two hosts asked if I knew the origins of the physical fitness system known as Pilates. I must report that unfortunately it has nothing to do with the Byzantine palace. Instead, the exercise system Pilates was named for its creator, Joseph Pilates. Joseph developed the system during World War I while he was held at the Nakalo internment camp. He practiced the moves that would one day form the basis of The system with his fellow internees. After his release, he would marry a woman named Clara, and the two would settle in the city of New York. Clara happened to also be an expert in physical exercise and dance, so the two opened a studio in New York where they could teach their new method. Joseph referred to the system as controlology, as the goal of the system was to learn how to use one's mind to control muscles and use the core postural muscles to balance the body and support the spine. The Pilates studio grew in popularity, and Joseph used this popularity to publish several books, most notably Return to Life through Controlology. Joseph and Clara continued to teach the system into the late 1960s. Through the popular books and the spread of their former students, the physical fitness system continued to grow in popularity. Practitioners and instructors of controlology decided to honor the system's creator by renaming the system Pilates. Pilates is today practiced by over 11 million people worldwide, which is a larger population than the entire country of Switzerland. Speaking of Switzerland, have you ever wondered why the bodyguard of the Pope are known as the Swiss Guard? Wow. I really nailed that segue. The Pontifical Swiss Guard is the de facto military of Vatican City and more famously the personal bodyguard of the Pope. Recruits to the Guard must be unmarried Swiss Catholic males aged 19 to 30 that have completed basic training with the Swiss Armed Forces. This begs the question, why do they have to be Swiss? The Vatican estimates that there are 1.2 billion Roman Catholic Christians in the world. And yet, the Holy See only employs military agents from a relatively small country. Additionally, Switzerland boasts only a 37.2% of their population as Catholic, which certainly diminishes the available pool of recruits. Given the importance of the Pope's position in the world, you would think that the Vatican would have the best of the best of the best protecting him, rather than just somewhere around 130 well-trained Swiss Catholics. As you might imagine, the answer to why this is, is found in historical tradition. Back in episode 6, we covered why the Pope is the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church. That episode provides some excellent background information of the powers of the Pope and how his place in Christendom has grown over the years. As it was not directly related to the primacy of Rome, we did not discuss the papal military. Imperial and religious bodyguards have a very long and storied history basically ever since there were people with authority, there have been people assigned to protect those people. One of my personal favorite examples of a bodyguard is the Immortals of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. The Immortals were a heavy infantry unit of the Persian army who served a dual role as the Imperial Guard. According to Herodotus, they were called the Immortals due to a custom that saw any member who was killed, seriously wounded, or sick immediately replaced so that the size of the unit remained constant at 10,000 soldiers. The immortals wore an elaborate headdress known as the Persian tiara, and a cloth pulled across their face to keep out the wind, dirt, and dust that was common to the Persian plains. The covered face and headdress would have heightened the illusion that this elite force was endless and immortal. It should be noted that our main source on the Achaemenid Persian immortals is the Greek father of history, Herodotus. While I personally love Herodotus, his methods of finding the truth in the historical facts was not always the most rigorous, and we do lack a lot of corroborating information from Persian sources about the immortals. But, as described in Herodotus, and as used by later generations who attempted to emulate them, they sound absolutely awesome. From the immortals of ancient Persia to the secret service of modern-day presidents, anyone who is anyone has a top-notch guard. If we narrow our focus to the Roman world, then the most notorious and famous imperial guard group would be the Praetorian Guard, whose founding actually predates the Roman Empire. After Augustus was proclaimed imperator and assumed the role of princeps, he repurposed the Praetorians to his personal guard. Each successive emperor continued to use the Praetorians as their elite military unit and personal guards. The Praetorians play a very prominent role throughout Roman history, And if you do listen to Roman emperors, Totalis Rancium, then you will get to know them very well. The reason you get to know them so well is that the Praetorians have a very ominous reputation for getting involved in politics, which I cannot imagine is something most people look for in a bodyguard. The best example would be the career of Roman Emperor Didius Julianus. Didius Julianus became emperor after the Praetorians killed the man they were supposed to be guarding in Emperor Pertinax, and then auctioned off the role of emperor to the highest bidder in order to get paid. That story makes them sound like the worst bodyguards who ever lived, which actually helps to highlight one of the reasons why the Pontifical Swiss Guard specifically recruits Swiss citizens. The Praetorians were all well-to-do Romans. A position in the Praetorian Guard was highly sought after as they were the best paid, received the best assignments, and had the most influence. Therefore, one usually needed some sort of connection before being allowed to join. This created an elite military caste from prominent families who in addition to their official duties were often obsessed with gaining political power. If you select a foreign-born guard, then they will be unable to gain political power and therefore be more likely to remain loyal to their charge. The Emperor Constantine dissolved the Praetorian Guard in 312 after he defeated Maxentius, who was largely supported by the Praetorians. By the time of Constantine, the guard was considered largely obsolete, as they typically remained in Rome, and the emperors of the 4th century spent very little time in Rome. Constantine replaced them with the Scoli Palantini. The Scoli Palantini were an elite military unit, predominantly cavalry, and remained with the emperor at all times as an official bodyguard. Constantine filled the Scoli with men loyal to him and opened the ranks to individuals of Germanic descent. The exact ethnic makeup of the Scoli is not precisely known, but it is generally believed to have been a mix of Germanic and Roman, with the Romans still being the predominant party. The most common Germanic tribes represented in the west were the Franks and the Alamanni, while in the east it was the Goths. The Scoli Palatini would continue to serve in the Western Roman Empire straight through the quote-unquote fall of Rome that is marked by the abdication of Romulus Augustulus. It was the Ostrogothic king Theoderic the Great who ruled Italy on behalf of the Eastern Roman Empire, who disbanded the Scoli. It is in this era of tumult that the Pope becomes increasingly important. Roman legitimacy and continuity is often questioned in the period of 400 to 800. The proponents of the fall of the West school of thought point to the end of imperial rule in Rome with the lack of Western Roman emperors after 476, the growth in power of the successor states and barbarian kingdoms like the Franks, Ostrogoths, and Lombards, and other societal breakdowns to prove the endpoint of the Roman Empire in the West. The proponents of the continuation of the Roman Empire point to governmental systems that were used by Odoacer and then the Ostrogoths maintained the Roman systems, that the kings of Italy ruled nominally in the Eastern Roman Emperor's name, and of course then there was the Exarchate of Ravenna, which held hegemony over Rome from 584 to 751 and reported directly to Constantinople. Whichever theory you hold for that period, or if you have a combination of the two, A fact that we can all agree on is the Pope's role in Rome. The Pope, also known as the Bishop of Rome, had been a constant symbol of Rome since the days of St. Peter, long before the Christian Church was even recognized by the Roman Empire. The Pope is the one constant through Rome's topsy-turvy history of 400-800 to CE. It was during these 400 years that the Church in Rome really started to consider itself as the preeminent capital of Christendom. For the entire period, the Pope would have been considered one of the three most powerful people in the Church. The other two would have been the Roman Emperor and the Patriarch of Constantinople. Rounding out the top six would have been the Patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem in that order. The Bishop of Rome's legitimacy was founded on the fact that he was the successor of St. Peter, who was called by Jesus to be the rock on which his Church would be built. In practical terms, though, it was the emperor who held the military to back up his viewpoints, and the patriarch of Constantinople was the closest in proximity to the emperor, so he was often able to have his desires heard first. This created tension, but during the reign of the exarchate of Ravenna, the pope largely had to do what he was told. It is for this reason that if you ever look at a list of popes, you will notice that the majority of them, between 584 and 751, are Greek in nationality, while after Stephen III died in 772, there has only been one since. The Pope's rise from merely religious figure to that of a major political one was cemented in 756 with the Donation of Pepin. The Exarchate of Ravenna is often known as the last vestige of the Roman Empire in northern Italy, and it was conquered by the Lombards in 751. This left the Pope in Rome exposed as the Lombards were predominantly Arian Christians. The Eastern Roman Empire had suffered successive defeats at the hands of the Muslims and were unable to mount any sort of defense against the Lombards, who were quickly conquering all of their Italian territory. The relative weakness of the Romans, combined with a split between the Roman Church and the Constantinople Church in regards to icons, made relations between the Pope and the Emperor icy at best. Pope Stephen II realized that not only would the Eastern Romans be no help in the fight against the Lombards, but that he was kind of sick of capitulating to the Eastern style of Christianity. This emboldened him to take a wholly unprecedented step of requesting aid from the one barbarian successor kingdom who practiced Catholicism rather than Arianism, the Franks. Stephen sent an envoy to meet with the King of the Franks, Pepin the Short, and request a meeting. After meeting with the Pope, Pepin agreed to march his army into Italy and force the Lombards to surrender their conquest of the territory previously controlled by the Exarchate of Ravenna. Pepin then donated the territory to the Pope, and in 774, Pepin's son Charlemagne confirmed the donation. The donated territory made the Pope a temporal leader for the first time and provided the legal basis for the erection of the Papal States. The legal authority and freedom from the Eastern Roman Empire gave the Pope powers he had never had before. The power continued to grow when in 800 Charlemagne was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor and the Holy Roman Empire was founded. While the East-West Schism would not separate the Church of Rome from the Church of Constantinople for a few hundred more years, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church was largely independent for the rest of history. That is slightly general and does not speak to the rather complicated history of the Papal States. For instance, most accounts do show that the Pope did not have great control of the Papal States until the Diploma Autononium that confirmed Papal independence after the conquest of northern Italy by Otto I of Germany in 962, but even the history behind that document is really complicated and mostly outside the scope of today's episode. The thing to note in these early years of papal temporal authority is the foundation of a papal military. The soldiers who served the pope were either volunteers or mercenaries. For the entire history of the Papal States, the pope had some difficulty of controlling Italy, but over time the pope's rule grew more stable. This was partially helped by the growing number of Catholic powers throughout Europe. These new Catholic kingdoms did not particularly want to lose power to the pope in their own kingdoms but at the same time the monarchs were Catholics who mostly respected the Pope and his right to hold the Papal States. This was partially helped by the fact that after the First Crusade of 1095-1099, to 1099, it was shown that the Pope had the ability to call into military service large armies that did not owe any sort of fealty to him, and instead just based on his spiritual authority. The Pope's personal bodyguard would have likely included the elites from the mercenary armies hired by the Papal States. The Rus, Scandinavians, and Anglo-Saxons were often regarded as the best mercenary soldiers in all of Europe. As one example, it was predominantly these nationalities that made up the Roman Imperial Guard ranks, the varangian Guard. The Varangian Guard was likely one of the inspirations for the later Swiss Guards. If you want more information about the Brainyan Guard, I would recommend the Dead Ideas podcast series on them, as it is really fascinating. The description we have discussed up to this point mostly has to deal with the development of imperial bodyguards into a precursor for the Pontifical Swiss Guard, and describing how the Pope rose to need such a guard. The Swiss would enter the ranks of the papal military as mercenaries in the late 14th and 15th centuries, but the Swiss had a reputation as one of the fiercest military regions in the world. Long before that, even back all the way to their roots, as a small Celtic tribe known as the Helvetii. The Celts were an Indo-European ethno-linguistic group of people who came to live in Central Europe by 700 BCE. The Celts were not a unified group, but rather several tribes related and connected by language and cultural similarities. The Helvetii tribe separated from the other Celtic tribes and settled in the area that is now western Switzerland by the 2nd century BCE. In the same time period, the Germanic tribes began to move out of Scandinavia and northern Germany, which forced the Celts to flee west. In the 1st century BCE, the Germanic peoples started to encroach on Helvetian territory, and the Helvetii fled to Gaul. Unfortunately for the Helvetii, the Romans had set their sights on Gaul. Or rather, one very specific Roman proconsul named Julius Caesar had set his eyes on Gaul as the perfect place to gain territory for Rome and fame for Caesar. The quote unquote invasion of Gaul by the Helvetii gave Caesar the Cassius Belli for a war. From 58 to 50 BCE, Caesar waged the Gallic Wars that saw the Helvetii and other Gallic tribes defeated and Gaul annexed into the Roman Republic. Thus, the Helvetii people and their region of the world came under Roman hegemony, but the fighting skills of the Helvetii made a lasting impact on the Romans. The Roman senator and historian Tacitus wrote a history book called On the Origin and Situation of the Germans. It was published in approximately 98 CE and described the Helvetians as, The Helvetians are a people of warriors, famous for the valor of their soldiers. In the first couple centuries of the Roman Empire, the Helvetii retained some of their tribal identity, but were largely influenced and Romanized by the empire. This included a gradual conversion to Christianity after Constantine's adoption of the religion. Switzerland still celebrates their Helvetic origin. The country of Switzerland has four official languages and five official country names, one in each of their official languages and one in Latin. Their Latin name is Confederatio Helvetica. The five official names would all translate to English as approximately the Swiss Confederacy, but the continued use of the Latin name and the Helvetii name tells us the pride modern Swiss feel towards their origin story. The next 1,000 years of Swiss history is absolutely fascinating, and after exploring it briefly in Rebecca Rowell's book Switzerland, I have to say I would subscribe immediately to a podcast about the history of Switzerland. Unfortunately, most of it is not really relevant to today's subject. As a result, we are going to leap forward in time all the way to 1291 and the federal charter that is generally considered as the founding document of the old Swiss Confederacy, which is largely the precursor to our modern state of Switzerland. In our 1,000-year time jump, the Swiss experienced the collapse of Roman imperial authority, followed by invasions and sometimes occupations by the Alemanni. Burgundians, Franks, and Germans, fell in and out of Christianity, and then eventually found its way into the Holy Roman Empire, though perhaps not by choice. In 1273, Rudolf of Habsburg was elected the first Habsburg King of the Romans. Rudolf was never granted the title of Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, but as there was not a Holy Roman Emperor from 1250 to 1312, Rudolf held many of the same powers in his role as King. Rudolf's legacy is generally seen as his establishment of the House of Habsburg as a powerful dynasty in the Southeast Territory of the empire and his move to the Duchy of Austria that saw the Habsburg rule the region until 1918. In other parts of the empire, particularly in Switzerland, Rudolf's legacy was that of a ruler who ruled harshly and taxed heavily. When Rudolf died in 1291, the Uri, Schweiz, and Unterwalden cantons formed the League of the Three Forest Cantons, and pledged to mutually defend one another's liberties. In 1315, the League was put to the test when they backed the Duke of Bavaria to be the next Holy Roman Emperor instead of the Habsburg Prince. The Prince sent his brother, the Duke of Austria, to put down the League's resistance. The League ambushed the Habsburg Army at the Battle of Morgarten and brutally killed approximately 1,500 Habsburg soldiers, which amounted to at least half of the army. The battle was a decisive League victory, and led to a renewal of the pledge of military assistance between the League members called the Pact of Brunnen. This cemented the bond between the three cantons, and transformed the League from a pragmatic alliance formed to protect themselves in 1291 into a true Confederacy. The Confederacy would prove permanent. The Federal Charter of 1291 and the Pact of Brunnen in 1315 Are the two foundational documents of the old Swiss Confederacy that would eventually grow to encompass the area of modern day Switzerland? The Battle of Morgarten is also the reason the Confederacy became known as the Swiss Confederacy and why we today call the country Switzerland. In the battle, the soldiers from the Schweizer Canton were the most prominent and brutal of all. Their bravery and ferociousness in battles led outsiders to refer to the new Confederacy as Schweizers or Schwitzers and to the confederacy as Schweiz or Swiss. I'm sure to the eternal chagrin of Uri and Unterwalden, the name Swiss stuck and would eventually come to define the Swiss confederacy. Over time, the Swiss territories would grow due to their military victories, and what started off as a confederacy of three cantons eventually grew to the 26 cantons of modern Switzerland, The military reputation of the Swiss continued to impress for the next 200 years. The old Swiss Confederacy would remain in the Holy Roman Empire until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 made them independent. However, from 1499 until 1648, they were only nominally part of the empire. This was due to the Swiss victory over Emperor Maximilian in 1499. It established a de facto independence in the Swiss region as the emperor no longer had the ability to order the militarily superior Swiss to do anything. The independence allowed the Swiss to begin to develop their reputation for neutrality. The Hundred Years' War pitted the English and French against each other from 1337 to 1453 and greatly changed the face of warfare in Western Europe forever after. There were individuals who had fought in the war for their entire lives, and when it ended, war was really their only marketable skill. The constant years of fighting and the transition period afterward saw the establishment of permanent standing armies in Western Europe for really the first time since the Romans. This change created a class of professional soldiers and also made mercenary companies more popular throughout the West. The change to professional armies matched perfectly with the time period of Swiss military ascendancy. The old Swiss confederacy had developed a reputation for tough-as-nail soldiers, but they were not the most prosperous confederacy as the Swiss Alps are not exactly resource-rich. This meant that the best commodity that the Swiss cantons had at their disposal was their highly skilled and trained soldiers. The Swiss pikemen were particularly valuable as they were known to be able to defend their position against vastly superior numbers. The Swiss cantons started to rent out their companies of soldiers for summer campaigns in order to bring in much-needed capital. Soon the Swiss mercenary companies were among the most sought-after mercenaries of Western Europe. The Valois kings of France were particularly fond of Swiss mercenaries. King Louis XI, also known as Louis the Prudent, was King of France from fourteen sixty one to fourteen eighty three but before he was king, Louis was very active as a military leader in fourteen forty three The old Swiss Confederacy had besieged the city of Zurich, and the Holy Roman Emperor called on the King of France for aid. The king chose to send his son and successor to relieve the city. Louis took a force of thirty thousand plus soldiers, primarily mercenary ones, into Switzerland to lift the siege. The Swiss sent an advanced troop of 1,300 young pikemen to head off and delay the French. The 1,300 troops met with 200 additional local troops and defeated a vanguard of French troops. The success of the early battle encouraged the Swiss pikemen to confront the entire French army, despite direct orders from their superiors to do no such thing. The 1,500 Swiss pikemen met the 30,000-plus French troops at the Battle of Saint-Jacques-en-Durberge. The Swiss formed into three pike squares of 500 men, and by all accounts, fought very bravely. The French sent cavalry charge after cavalry charge, and each one was repulsed. The future Pope Pius II was actually at the battle, and would later describe how the Swiss ripped bloody crossbow bolts from their bodies and charged the enemy even after they had been pierced by spears. Eventually, the numerically superior French force was victorious, but the pikemen refused to surrender and instead had to be killed to a man. The final result of the battle saw approximately 2,000 French soldiers die and all the Swiss soldiers. Victory at such a cost made Louis pause and reconsider continuing to Zurich where a force of 30,000 Swiss soldiers were encamped. Instead of continuing to fight, Louis instead made peace with the Swiss Confederacy. This was partially due to a want to avoid similar bloodshed by meeting the full force of the Swiss, and partially due to political pressures. The refusal to back down or surrender on the part of the Swiss was forever remembered by Louis. After he became king, Louis would regularly hire the Swiss as mercenaries. This started a tradition of just about every Valois king of France hiring the Swiss as an essential piece of their army. In the book Church History by John D. Woodbridge and Frank A. James, it is stated that, the Valois kings of France were loath to take to the field of battle without Swiss pikemen at the core of their armies. In 1480, as king, Louis went a step further when he chose to retain a Swiss company of 100 pikemen as his personal bodyguard. The sent Swiss remained the personal bodyguard of the King of France until the French Revolution. The Italian Wars, also known as the Habsburg Valois Wars, raged from 1494 to 1559. It is believed that as many as 100,000 Swiss mercenaries were employed during the war, predominantly prior to 1521, when massed firearm formations started to replace the Standard Pikemen. The Italian Wars were one of the reasons why the Pontifical Swiss Guard formed. The first alliance between the Papal States and the Swiss Confederacy occurred during the papacy of Pope Sixtus IV, who served from 1471 to 1484. The pact was renewed by the successor who actually employed Swiss mercenaries against the Duke of Milan. The papacy sided with France during the Second Italian War and worked closely with the King of France's favorite mercenary group, the Swiss pikemen. The Second Italian War, sometimes known as the War Over Naples, lasted from 1499 to 1504. One of the most important representatives of the papal states in the war was the Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere. Cardinal Revere witnessed firsthand the combat ability of the Swiss mercenaries, and before the war had concluded, the Cardinal had been elected Pope and took the name Pope Julius II. Pope Julius II is sometimes known as the Warrior Pope due to his military accolades as ruler of the Papal States. He was very much a Renaissance man, and this meant that he very much wanted to see Rome return to her former glory. In this goal, he started to fashion himself as a sort of emperor-pope who even led his army on campaigns in Italy. As pope, he fought against a French attempt to take over the Italian states and suppressed further Venetian expansion. A pope with the secular ambition of Julius was bound to make enemies and required the best protection. Upon his ascension to the role of Pope in 1503, Julius requested a constant corps of 200 Swiss mercenaries from the Federal Diet of Switzerland to provide for his personal protection. The request was eventually approved, and in September 1505, the first contingent of Swiss pontifical guards started their march toward Rome. They arrived in Rome on January 22, 1506, and that is considered the date of the guard's official foundation it is unlikely that Pope Julius II knew that he had just established a tradition that has lasted for over 500 years when he requested the Swiss Guard. Instead, it would seem that he was like many other powerful members of society who had seen the Swiss pikemen in action, knew their value, and realized they were the best resource to guarantee their personal safety. It is also possible that since Julius wanted to regain the glory of Rome, that he wanted to install a guard, much like the Praetorian Guard of old, but more trustworthy. The choice of the Swiss as personal bodyguards proved to be the correct choice when, 21 years later, mutinous forces of the Holy Roman Empire marched on Rome with plans of sacking the city and capturing or killing the Pope. On May 6, 1527, the numerically vastly superior troops of the Holy Roman Empire attacked the largely undefended city, and easily made their way to the Vatican. At the time, the Swiss Guard numbered 189 troops. The defenders of Rome included a 5,000-man militia and the Swiss Guard. The Empire's troops numbered 20,000. Pope Clement VII fled into the Basilica of St. Peter. 147 Swiss Guard made their last stand of the Swiss Guard in order to delay the troops from reaching the Pope. All 147 Swiss Guards fell in the attack, including the Guard's captain, as they defended their charge in a bitter struggle. The remaining 42 Swiss guards guided the Pope through the Passetto de Borgio, a secret corridor from Vatican City to the Castel St. Angelo. Pope Clement was able to survive in the fortress, but did eventually have to surrender after a multiple-day sacking of Rome. It took a decade to replenish the Swiss guard, in which time the Pope was protected by German mercenaries, but ever since Pope Paul III reinstated the Swiss Guard in 1537, the Guard has never left the Pope's side. The Swiss Guard remained in partially a military role and partially a guard role until the end of the Italian Wars. At that point, they transitioned fully to the role of personal bodyguard of the Pope. The most common image of the pontifical Swiss Guard is the ceremonial Renaissance-era uniform and halberds. There has been a persistent legend that Michelangelo designed the uniforms, But this is not believed to be true. The tunics display the colors of the Medici family and are fairly typical of Renaissance uniforms. The uniforms, pikes, and halberds are really only worn for ceremonial purposes, and all members of the Guard are trained in modern weaponry and counterterrorism. In 1981, the Swiss Guard foiled an assassination attempt on the life of Pope John Paul II. It was a plainclothes guardsman who rushed to the aid and saved the Pope's life. Ever since this assassination attempt, the focus of the guard has shifted away from ceremony and toward modern guard-corpse duties. Plain-clothes guardsmen accompany the Pope on all international trips, and if you look closely at footage of Pope Francis, you can usually pick out a few such guards. The history of the Pontifical Swiss Guard since the 1527 Sack of Rome has been a fairly typical one for guard units across the world. In 1874, the Swiss Confederacy passed a new federal constitution that included an amendment that banned foreign countries from recruiting Swiss citizens into militaries. This ended the long tradition of Swiss mercenaries and Swiss guards in foreign courts. The amendment notably exempted the Pontifical Swiss Guard from this ban, and today the only Swiss citizen serving a foreign dignitary is the Pontifical Swiss Guard. The prowess of the Swiss mercenaries combined with the personal experience of Pope Julius II explains why the Swiss Guard was initially adopted by the Pope. The reason it has remained is partially due to tradition, partially due to their continued success, partially due to the close relationship of Vatican City and Switzerland, and partially due to a lack of better options that would justify ending it. Contrary to popular belief, the Swiss Guard are not the police force of Vatican City and that role is instead held by a force called the Corps of Gendarmerie of Vatican City. The Gendarmerie are a force of approximately 130 Italian citizens who handle the police affairs of the city. The Pontifical Swiss Guard also number around 130, though I've read conflicting numbers on this count, anywhere from 100 to 150, so I'm not positive on the exact number of Swiss Guards the defense of the Vatican City is then the direct responsible of a quote-unquote military of under 300 people. This would be very problematic if it did not sit within the city of Rome, where the Italian military are more than happy to assist with defending the Vatican from threats that the small unit would not be able to handle, such as potential drone attacks. Okay, that is it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Pontifical Swiss Guard, and be sure to subscribe so that you can join me again in two weeks. The show is available on all major podcast apps, such as Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podcast Republic, CastBox, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are streamed. Thanks for listening to the Why Is That podcast. Until next time, cheers.